Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Lisa Cox, writer, presenter, and inclusion advocate. Lisa acquired multiple pressure injuries in her early 20s following a brain hemorrhage and over a year of hospitalization the first time. Her injuries have been significant, but it's the barely visible pressure injuries that has stopped Lisa more than her wheelchair, prosthetic leg or brain injury. Today, Lisa speaks at staff education events and medical conferences about the long-term effects of pressure injuries and has helped produce prevention and care information for patients and their families. We speak about pressure injuries, debunking myths, advocacy in this fantastic interview with Lisa. And I started asking her what she thought was the biggest misconception about pressure injuries. One of the ones I speak about in my presentations is that pressure injuries are a short-term thing that go away when a patient is discharged or something like that. So I acquired three pressure injuries and the worst was a stage four on my sacrum. And over 15 years later, that still gives me more pain and causes me more problems than many of my other permanent visible scars and disabilities. Second one would be you can't really necessarily see them. They're deceiving, basically. So they can look really tiny and insignificant and small. But mine was an iceberg pressure injury, which people who've got a clinical background will understand. On the surface, it looks just like a little pimple, was what my dad would say it looked like. But underneath, it was a bit of a mess. You just couldn't see that. So in my case, all of my hands and feet were quite literally rotting away. I had all turned gangrenous from what happened, but I couldn't feel them at all. Couldn't feel my hands and feet, but it was this one little pressure injury on my sacrum that looked really insignificant compared to my disgusting hands and feet. But it was that one pressure injury which caused me more pain than anything. And that was the one that was quite inconspicuous to the eye. That's correct. A lot of pressure injuries can be quite inconspicuous. The one on the back of my head was probably more obvious and these days again 15 years later over 15 years I have a permanent bald spot there as my hairdresser likes to remind me so that's never going to change there's permanent scar tissue on my remaining heel where the third breast injury was and a little scar on my sacrum but they are permanent and can cause a lot more harm than you would otherwise suspect. So Lisa tell us about your story where did it all begin? Okay, well, I'll give you the short version. So I was at Melbourne Airport one morning, just out of the blue, had a brain hemorrhage. So after tests and everything, they found out that was caused by streptococcus A. I spent three weeks in a coma, two months on life support and over a year in hospital that first time. And during that time, my left leg, all of my right toes and nine of my fingertips were amputated. 
Um, I've had heart surgery twice and total hip replacement at 27 years of age, which <laughs> all the things that happen to old people mm. happened to me in my early 20s. So I also talk about the invisible disability. So you can see my wheelchair, my prosthetic leg, but what you can't see is my chronic fatigue. I'm over 25% blind. I have epilepsy. And in some ways, my pressure injury, even though it was, it was quite visible at the time, it's my invisible disability now because it, it certainly stops me doing certain things. So during that first two months in ICU on life support is really, as the clinicians would know, there is no point in time where you can really nail down as, yep, that's when she acquired the pressure injury. It was two months worth of just lying on my back because of my brain injury I was having seizures and there was friction there as well and at the time from what I'm told there wasn't quite the understanding about pressure injuries that there is now so even when I was conscious months later I'd I'd still be lying down couldn't feel my hands and feet which revolting but it was this small pressure injury that I could feel when I was put on the shower trolley for example and that was how I had a shower for the first few months I'd just be hosed down on the shower trolley my hands and feet were all in plastic bags to keep them dry couldn't feel them but it was that that small pressure injury which really caused the pain and so this pressure injury that you mentioned on your sacrum when was it discovered how that it was actually stage four? Well, there's a great nurse called Tracy at the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane because I fell ill in Melbourne and they knew I'd been in hospital for quite some time. So once I came off life support, they met back to me up to Brisbane and I can't remember entirely the point at which they knew it was there, but I know I certainly became aware of it a few months after brain hemorrhage once I was out of coma and there was a great nurse called Tracy as I mentioned at the British Charles Hospital in Melbourne who uh, was the first person to really address it as a big concern and give it as much attention as my rotting hands and feet and brain injury and all of the other terrible things give it as much attention as professionals were giving those things. So my parents, I'm very fortunate so I had my parents there and they had a lot of conversations with Tracy about dressing it daily and making sure that it was clean and all of the things. I'm not entirely sure what the nurses did, but I, I know they were cleaning and dressing it quite frequently. So that was a long period of time in hospital that was somewhat completely unexpected from that moment yes. that you're in the airport in Melbourne. And after coming out of the hospital, you had to hit the restart button on so many areas of your life. So what did that look like? Kind of talk us through the next couple of decades. Oh, gosh, it's been a bit nuts. And I'm still in in so many ways hitting the restart button and a lot of people in isolation. But COVID at the moment are facing isolation for the first time. But I just wrote an article and basically said that I've been in isolation for the last 15 years in varying degrees. So at first it was the really, really small things like learning to feed myself, dress myself, put my own hair up, just really basic things like that. And once I came out of hospital, I was lucky enough to be able to move back home with my parents, which was great. But <laughs> um, yeah, I was pretty keen to get out of there and get my own independence as well. That all being said, I did need some extra help for a little while. And now I'm living independently with my husband, who I met afterwards. And 
as a professional writer, I was working in advertising agencies for years. Once a writer, always a writer, but I couldn't type because none of my fingertips had been amputated. I was over 25% blind. I had permanent brain damage. So all the tools of my trade had really been destroyed. Mm. So just teaching myself how to type again was a real a mission that I was determined to, to do something with. So I, I just sat at the kitchen table on a cheap laptop and tapped away for days on end and just taught myself how to type with my new fingers, brain and eyes. Did you find that this process was therapeutic in a way? It was cathartic at the time because, and still is, I suppose, because I have written a lot about my experiences and at the time just started jotting down little memories of this happened and this happened and this happened. And in some ways it was very cathartic. I know, I know there, was, there was once or twice I got a bit teary at the keyboard and these days I'm, I'm fairly used to it, but it certainly was somewhat therapeutic at the time. My OT would have been proud of me because mm. I had you know, taught myself how to type again, but from a mental health perspective, it did certainly help. Mm. And just wondering with the changes in technology, are you still typing or are you are using transcription type tools that are so more widely available now? Yeah, a bit of both. So on my phone, for example, I just send text messages, use voice to text software. But because my speech was also affected by the brain hemorrhage, my speech isn't always great, so it does have a bit of trouble interpreting sometimes. I've used a bit of both, but on a day-to-day basis, I, I tend to use the keyboard, although I'm very slow, I do use the keyboard to type most mm. of my stuff. Yeah, I see. And I guess it's good that there is that option even when needed. That's right. I know that if things do slow down more, that that option is available. I know it's a it's huge game changer for a lot of people who don't have the option to use a keyboard. So Lisa, tell us more about pressure injuries. What causes them? They can be caused by lots and lots of different factors. In, in my case, it was lying for that two months in ICU and the, the, pre, the months after that. They can often occur on bo- bony promenades, so that's why mine was on my sacrum, on my heel and on the back of my head because there were the points that were really touching the bed, touching the mattress for an extended period of time. I should probably, this is where if I was presenting, I'd pass over to a clinician to, <laughs> to get them to add their notes. But my understanding as a layman is that they can potentially occur because of friction. So back in the good old days, it wasn't that long ago, but they used to use slide boards and slide sheets to move a patient from one bed to the next. And I'm not entirely sure if, if all the hospitals have dropped that now, but I know that the day that my pressure injury would spend healing, all of that just went out the window. The minute I went on a slide board or a slide sheet, I would just tore it up again. So Mm. sorry, that probably didn't answer your question. (laughs) No, it's really good to hear from your own experience and your own perspective as well. Yeah, that can be a lot of things. So there's also medical devices that can cause it. So if, if someone has a catheter or if someone has a breathing device or some other device, medical devices can also cause it. It's really any time there's pressure against skin for a prolonged period, And obviously everyone's different. Your skin integrity may be better than mine, in which case I'm I'm more at risk of pressure injuries than you are. 
Yeah. So in terms of who can be affected, I think there's an, another misconception about pressure injuries that we think of it, that it's an elderly person, right? Huge misconception. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's something that I do try and I do try and speak about in my presentations as well. We have this misconception that it's, it's just old people. And I was 24 when I acquired all of my pressure injuries, relatively fit and healthy prior to going into hospital. Yeah, so the stereotype that it's only little old ladies and little old men is definitely not true. I know a couple of years ago I was in a hospital and asked a nurse to just check out a red spot that I had, just to be concerned that it may have been something worse. And the response was, oh, no, that's nothing, don't worry about it. You're too young for a pressure injury. Oh, wow. And this clinician wasn't, didn't know my, my health history and wasn't aware of my previous experience with pressure injuries. So I was a little bit gobsmacked and at the same time a little bit disappointed because I've been speaking about pressure injury prevention for so many years and really trying to make the point that age does not discriminate. There are certain things that will put you at high risk. If you are older, you may be at high risk because you're maybe thinner or, or that sort of thing. If you have a worse skin integrity, by some, it should never be assumed that it's not something that can affect young people. Pediatric wards have newborns who have pressure injuries from devices and those sorts of things. And yeah, the pediatric ward have them as well. So it would have changed a lot from when you were first admitted into hospital in regards to the treatment options. So could you explain a little bit, just in your words, I guess, how treatment options were when back 15 years ago to how they have kind of changed today? Let a, um, a clinician speak more specifically about treatment options in terms of dressing types and those sorts of things. But one thing I do know is that there's more awareness around pressure injuries. And a lot of that has come from the work that so many really, really great clinicians have been doing. And I don't want to speak poorly of the hospital, but you know, 15 years ago, if I, if I complained about I mean, this sore spot on my sacrum, it certainly wasn't given as much importance as it is today. And a, a large part of that is to do with the new Australian standards that came out in 2012, 2013, I'm trying to remember. And the fact that hospitals can now be fined for hospital-acquired pressure injuries has really made them take a lot more notice of what's going on and pay a lot more attention to those patients who are, quote-unquote, complaining about a sore heel, sore head, sore sacrum, whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think that's certainly helped things along. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of prevention, like if someone is immobile, it is kind of difficult to be moving them or putting them on a different side. So what are some of the interventions that I guess you experienced as to how to prevent more pressure injuries or to prevent the ones that they found to get even worse? Sure. That's, I suppose, depending on somebody's level of activity and these I can get myself off. Uh, yeah. Sorry, delete that bit. Give myself up. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of things these days I can get myself up to uh, move myself around basically from one side to the other or whatever the case may be. But back 15 years ago, I couldn't even lift my arms off bed. I needed help with absolutely everything. But I suppose that's where we got a bit creative. My 70-plus-year-old father worked out that, hey, if we roll up a hospital towel, and stick that under one hip 
it really takes the pressure off off my sacrum and I had a donut head pillow I call it a donut head pillow it's just a round pillow with a hole in it so it looks like a donut I had one of those for the back of my head and there are things like heel wedges which probably weren't around 15 years ago or at least I never saw one so there are a lot more assistive devices and, and those sorts of things which can help but if you're able to even just small moves small shifts can make a really big difference. I know Queensland Health did a campaign on that only a year or two ago. And understandably, people like myself just can't get up and go for a long walk. But even just moving from putting your weight on one side to the other can make a really big difference or moving that leg out of whatever position it may be in. And regular. So how regular would someone be, I guess, moving? I think... Again, this is probably where I would go to a clinician because I know there are rules and standards around this sort of thing, but I don't want to misquote anything. So every couple of minutes, just just shifting your weight. I think when I was in hospital, but again, this may have changed, every two hours I had to be turned. So by the morning, I just felt like I'm picking a spit roast because I had waddies come in and physically turn me over every couple of hours but there are standards around that which a clinician may be able to shed some more light on yeah and i am looking forward to speaking to a, a colleague of yours we'll make sure that we cover for, i guess more the clinical aspects but it's always so good to hear from personal experience because nurses yeah. and clinicians don't actually know what it feels like yes they may have treated hundreds and hundreds of people but i think it's important to have that personal perspective as well so that's right that's that's why I usually speak at the education seminars and always begin by saying, listen, I'm, I don't have, I have zero years worth of medical training and clinical experience, but I have over 15 years worth of lived experience. So mm. my whole point is not to offer any medical advice or speak for the clinicians, but just to add that perspective into a day full of education around clinical training my presentation is called context beyond textbooks because it's really just to give a another point of view or add some more context to all the theory and all of the really really great academic work that's been done yes fantastic and i would love to hear lisa how did you get started into this advocacy and speaking about pressure injuries it was one of my former nurses, who I, I still keep in touch with quite often, just asked me to, to come along to an education seminar and tell my story. And so that's what I did. And then she asked me to come back and so on and so on. And each time I did that, I made my presentation a little a little better than the last time, I suppose. So, and, and since then, I've been asked to join different committees and the statewide board for quality and safety with Queensland Health. And again, this goes back to the new Australian standards which were brought in. So previously, it used to be a room full of clinicians and medical experts, which is great, but we didn't have that perspective from that consumer or that's what we call patients or someone without lived experience. So now I sit on different committees and boards with a room full of clinicians and doctors and nurses and experts who, who really know their stuff, but just being able to get that perspective from someone with lived experience is really important too. Absolutely. And so since that first, I guess, initial 
keynote that you did, you have become a speaker and now a big advocate for both inclusion and diversity. Can you tell us a few favorite moments or some most unforgettable moments that reminded you, I guess, why you do what you do and why you share what you're sharing? Oh, sure. There have been many, many across along the years, but I suppose at the end of last year, I was I did something that I never thought I'd do. That was to be on the runway as the model in the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Festival. And I've been asked only a couple of weeks ago before we all went into into lockdown or isolation, was part of a photo shoot for another clothing brand. So I certainly didn't spend four years at uni to be a model. But that's I've been doing, but then there'll be the little moments. I know a mother came up to me and said, I, I love your posts on Instagram. I share them with my little daughter. And that just melted my heart. And I've had kids that I've spoken to come up and thank me for the work I'm doing around mental health and, and those sorts of things as well. So there can be the, the bigger moments or the really small moments that nobody sees that make a huge difference as well. And know that someone is actually I'm making a difference in some way. So that, that makes a difference. Yeah, giving purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so important. So why do you think it's so important to have visual representation of visible and invisible disability? So important for so many reasons, but I think that one of the big ones is that it changes social attitude. And one of the examples I've given before is that my nieces and nephews just talk to me like they talk to all the other aunties and uncles and they really don't care that I'm in a wheelchair or anything like that or that I look a bit different. Not that they won't help me when I do need help reaching a certain thing or doing a certain something, but their attitude towards me is just the same as it is towards everybody else. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that they see me all the time. They're always seeing me. Now, that's just my little example in my tiny little world. But if we blow that out into a a national or international perspective, Think of all the people whose lives that would change if disability shouldn't be this big deal or something that we, we look at as really different. I, I still get stares from people at the supermarket and that sort of thing. And little kids, that's fine. They're kids, they're curious. But it's the 40 and 50-year-old adults who confuse a toddler in a pram with an adult in a wheelchair and just have, have no idea of how to, how to speak to me or interact with me. It shouldn't be that way. And part of the reason is because they just don't see us. And I say us generally, people with disabilities, out and about living a quote-unquote normal life. And that term, I guess, othering. Yeah, we're only ever presented generally in two ways through the media. And that's unless you're a Paralympian with doing awesome things, either that or the pity. And if you, example of that is if you ever pay attention to being a news report or an episode of The Voice, the minute someone with disabilities comes on screen, the sad music begins. And so people learn their social cues from media and having spent many years working in it, that's one thing I know. And the social cues at the moment are to just pity anyone who's got a disability. Yeah, rather than you're living with a disability, but it doesn't define you. No, absolutely. So I guess what would you like to see in this change for the future with inclusion and diversity? 
lots and lots of things. But yeah, list them. A, I want to hear them all. That's <laughs> a small start, I suppose. So my background was in advertising. I spent years working in advertising agencies. So I've seen and I made ads basically. So I know from first-hand experience how relatively easy it is to include people with disabilities in advertisements and other forms of media and mainstream popular culture. So I've started a hashtag, or I started a hashtag a little while ago, disability for disability. And that visibility is not just pictures of people in wheelchairs, but it can also be talking about an invisible disability. Just really putting the spotlight on the issues surrounding disability, other than maybe just you know, talking about the NDIS or pity parties or all those sorts of things. But really making it something that, that's no big deal, I suppose. I wrote a piece ages and ages ago about the fact that I have in-laws. One is really, really white skin colour and the other one is really, really black. And they still talk about the fact that 40 years ago they would walk down the street hand in hand and people would just stare and do double takes and be gobsmacked. Mm. But these days nobody cares and it's mm. great. And because it's they see it so much through mainstream popular culture, it's just not a big deal anymore. The same thing applies to gay people and these other people who don't perhaps fit the stereotype of what we're used to seeing in Western media. And it would be great if disability reached a similar, I suppose we're, we're a few decades behind, but if we had that visual representation so that we weren't such a big deal and people didn't feel uncomfortable around us. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do with through all different sorts of means. Yeah, fantastic. And in terms of representation, I guess, because you have worked in advertising and there are two sides of it. So there's these you know, amazing catwalks where you get to fashion this beautiful couture you know, down the runways and then there's also these other shows that are othering or, you know, Australia's Got Talent and, oh yeah, you know, there's something, Alarming Bodies or those types of things. Oh, embarrassing Bodies. Yeah, Embarrassing <laughs> Bodies. How disgusting. Like how can, I guess, what's your message as far as advertising? It's not just any representation is good representation, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's, yeah, it's not a case of, yeah, any representation being a good thing, but I'm with an organisation called Media Diversity Australia at the moment, and they're a bunch of working journalists who have come together to look at the way culturally diverse Australians are represented on television. And I'm also working with them with regard to how disability is represented in mainstream news and newsrooms. And a really, really simple example that we give journalists is that if you're interviewing or if you're looking for people to speak to about a really general topic like the budget, ask a disabled person. They have views on those sorts of things as well. So let's not just talk to disabled people about wheelchairs and the NDIS and, and those sorts of things. Let's also talk to them about the budget and fashion and kids and mm. all the other things that we have an interest in. Mm, yeah, of course. It makes sense. So I guess from a perspective of just the general public and to those that maybe can have a bit of an alarm stance and, you know, just be downright ridiculous in terms of seeing you in a store and just 
thinking, you know, speaking to you differently. What is some advice for those, not those types of people, but just the general public when it comes to either caring for someone with a visible or invisible disability or someone that you may work with or go to school with? What's some advice that you can give from a perspective of someone that's gone through that? Okay, well, I I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of the entire disability community because everybody is so different and Mm. 20% of the population is is roughly what, roughly the figures that we have for who identifies as having disability. So I I won't speak for those people for a second, but from my own point of view, I just love having a, a normal conversation with somebody about normal things rather than being approached and I don't want people to feel like they're walking on eggshells around me and I've heard certain advocates say that they, they hate being asked asked questions and hate being asked these sorts of things but from my own personal point of view I love it because nobody is going to get an understanding of, of my life, of life with a disability unless they ask and they will continue to continue to walk on eggshells around myself and other people with disabilities if I'm not willing to speak about it. So the one thing I suppose that we can all agree on is that you don't say what's wrong with you. So while I don't mind people asking, I do have a problem sometimes with exactly how it comes out of their mouth. So what's wrong with you or what happens to you tend to be the popular favourites. But it's the people who ask with genuine um, not necessarily concern or anything like that. They generally want to know and learn and understand. I don't mind talking talking about it at all. That's right. It's not like anyone, you know, would go up to someone and ask them about their depression. So why would we have the right to speak to a complete stranger about why they might look different or why they might be in a wheelchair? Exactly, yeah. And um, in some ways, and I, I say this cautious, cautiously, I'm quite, quite lucky to have visible disabilities, a wheelchair and prosthetic limbs and missing fingertips and scars, as well as invisible disabilities. So my brain injury is actually a bigger challenge for me in day-to-day life than any of my prosthetics or wheelchairs or anything like that. But nobody can see them. So I've got a, a friend who has only, I'm going to say only the brain injury, but he has no um physical disability so he's always having to justify himself and explain himself and almost make excuses for why he's tired or can't understand something or can't comprehend and process things but and we've talked about this before in many ways lucky I suppose not to use that word but people just get it when I say oh no just don't understand that they almost say oh okay right she's in a wheelchair clearly she mustn't So you do a lot of speaking and the current landscape for events and speaking and things has changed rapidly early in the first quarter of 2020. Yes. So so have you been able to, or have some of these events changed to be accessible online? Have you got some projects coming up or some things that you'd like to, I guess, share or some things that you're looking forward to? Well, I did, but I've all been cancelled. Oh, no. So just a couple of weeks ago, we had the launch of this new label that's in Brisbane, which I'm really happy about because everything to do with fashion is usually in Sydney or Melbourne. But Christina Stevens is an inclusive range that's launching in Brisbane. And that means that it can, because 
I've done a lot of advocacy work around the business benefits of inclusive fashion as well. So I've got my business background and it's not just a case of standing on my soapbox and saying, oh, be, be nice to disabled people, it's a human rights issue. But it's really smart business as well. There's 20% of Australians who can, may not be able to walk but still use, or not 20%, but plenty of people who may not be able to walk but can still use credit cards and shop. But currently there are so few options for where to shop and without looking like you're, you're just in your pyjamas. Um, so I'm working with different people at the moment around all of that, but we did have a, a big launch coming up a few weeks ago and Kirsty Clements from Harper's Bazaar, who I wrote a piece for last year about inclusive fashion, was coming up to be on a panel with me because we thought that the best way to talk about this was literally to get all of the influencers and, influencers and decision makers into a room and just do that, have a chat about it. Mm. Um, about the obstacles and what we needed to do more of or less of. So that was something I was really looking forward to and still am once we all get out of isolation. Yes. Yeah, have fun. And I will ask if you can perhaps share for the listeners uh, some of those inclusive labels that you perhaps use yourself and that you know about and that you're doing work with and we'll make sure that we include them in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. Well, Hello Yellow, H-E-L-L-O-Y-E-L-L-O, is a website that brings together a heap of accessible or inclusive brands, and it's also based here in Melbourne, which is really fantastic. And Christina Stevens, which I just mentioned, is another. Every Human is down in Melbourne, where you are, mm-hmm. which is great. And the US and the UK, a few years ahead of us, unfortunately, but there are, I know Tommy Hilfiger did bring out an adaptive range, but I would love to see more more brands, bigger brands, I suppose, not necessarily bring out the adaptive ranges or inclusive ranges or anything like that, but just to include people with disabilities in their advertising and marketing because we're consumers as well. And it's important to see representation, not just for myself as a consumer, but for that little kid growing up, who doesn't see themselves represented in mainstream media or popular culture, being, yeah, just being able to see themselves represented. I wrote a piece a while ago about the fact that when I grew up, I grew up without a disability and my problems, problems, I suppose, were um, I had issues around you know, pimples and braces and things like that, and that's certainly not comparable to disability. But even with that, I at least saw myself represented in the media and mainstream public culture. But kids with disabilities don't have that chance. They're completely left out of the conversation. Mm. But they're future consumers and so are their parents. Yeah, that's a really good point from, I guess, a marketing and advertising and business perspective that it's actually in a business's best interest to do that type of marketing as well. That's exactly right. I know Target has been really great with that. They've been not not just um, not just in one advertisement, but consistently throughout the year. That's another thing as well. It can't be tokenistic. I know a few brands have asked me to do things for them. I've, I've done that once, and that's the only representation I've had for the the next couple of years. Mm. And it really it really is quite tokenistic. 
from that respect. But I do quite, I do try to focus on the business side of it as well because understandably there are people whose end goal is to make a profit and they're only interested in the profit margins and the P&L sheets and those sorts of things. So I do try to look at it and advocate for it from a business perspective because that's the only way you can bring some people on board and waving my advocacy flag and getting on the soapbox and having to rant about it being a human rights issue doesn't get through to everybody. So I guess if there are any fashion labels or anything listening, uh, get in touch with Lisa for a long-term contract. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that, not necessarily. There's, there's lots of where I'm not. I'm looking to get all people with disabilities included. It's not just a, a thing for me, but of I course. want more representation of people with, you know, Down syndrome and other things which I don't necessarily have experience with. Yeah, of course. Well, where can people find more about you, Lisa, and the work that you're doing? Well, I'll keep it simple because social media these days, too many platforms. So I'll just say go to Instagram because that's where I spend most of my time and my handle is lisacox.co, L-I-S-A-C-O-X.co and that's also my website but I do all my, try to do it as often as I can, whether it's, it's advocacy or just general what I'm up to. At the moment it's all about COVID but um, yeah, well stuck in isolation. Sometimes it's about mental health and other events I'm speaking at, but that's where I tend to do tend to do most things on Instagram. There's other platforms, but I don't really spend much time there. Yeah, fantastic. Instagram is the big one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for spending your morning with me. It was great to hear more about your story and the work that you're doing and more about pressure injuries. Thanks, Maureen. It was really great to be a part of this and thanks again for asking me. My pleasure. What a fantastic interview. I loved hearing Lisa's story and overcoming adversities. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were just that Lisa is a fantastic advocate for pushing the boundaries for stereotypes and beauty standards from being on the runway to promoting inclusive labels. Lisa continues to take the hand that was dealt to her and support others on their journey. Such a selfless act. Number two, campaigning and Debunking myths on pressure injuries is something that Lisa has spent much of her adulthood on. And when I first connected with Lisa and read her story, it hit me. There are so many conditions that need demystifying and pressure injuries hadn't yet crossed my mind. I am so grateful that Lisa's work has brought attention to a topic that is not often discussed or even known about in traditional media or health subjects. And for that, I'm just so grateful for this platform to be able to share the stories like Lisa's and the dedication that she has in her field and the differences that she's making for um, those that have experienced this, but also loved ones and the medical field as well. And number three, I'm sure you also heard it throughout the interview. Lisa has such a refreshing view on body positivity, advocacy, and challenging the status quo. She shares lots of snippets of her gold across her social media, so I'd highly recommend that you go give her a follow. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you found that this episode or another episode was 
really enlightening to you or informative, then I'd love for you to share the podcast with someone. Take a screenshot while you're listening and tag us on Instagram at dermhealth.co and we'll in turn feature it on our stories. So until next week, stay skin powered. We have an announcement to make. We are about to launch the Derm Health Co. magazine. Really more like a guidebook than a magazine, we are releasing a digital publication that is dedicated to acute and chronic skin conditions and everything in between. It's a guidebook with everything you need to know from products to lifestyle changes to support groups and associated resources, and each different issue will be on a different topic. Issue one is on breast cancer and all the different changes to skin, to hair and to lymph health following breast cancer diagnosis. The magazine is now ready for pre-order and you can get it online on our website at www.dermhealth.co. It will be released in April of 2020 and after this one we will be looking at doing other issues on other topics. So we would love for you to check this out. Make sure that you head to the link and you order your pre-release so that you get it as soon as it goes live. This is just another way that we are trying to raise awareness and advocacy for those with acute and chronic skin conditions to make people feel more skin connected. Thank you so much and I'd love to hear what you think. Thank you.